pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to open your word. As we do that this morning, Lord, we pray that you would find us to be teachable people, that we would be responsive to the word that we see and be people who act on what you've shown us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor Lord read for us the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13, and I guess it was on page 1576. So that's kind of where we're going to be this morning. If you want to follow along, we are going to bounce around a little bit, but that's, that's the passage that's going to inform our conversation this morning. I was in England and um, taking a flight back to the United States, and I had my boarding pass back in the day when, you know, they actually printed out a boarding pass and they handed it to you, blah, blah, blah. So I had my boarding pass, and I got to the, to the gate, and I handed my boarding pass to the flight attendant, uh, or the person you know, monitoring the security there uh, back in the day, and uh, she looked at it, and her eyes opened really wide, and she said, right this way, sir. And she led me to the first class cabin in a Boeing 747. Not the upper deck, but the lower deck that's right underneath the cockpit. I mean, this was a cool place. And they sat me down in my seat, which according to my boarding pass was seat 6H. They sat me down there, and within two minutes, I had these little booties on my feet, I had a glass of orange juice in my hand, in a real glass, and I was, you know, I'm thinking, man, somebody in the Air Force transportation system messed up really badly, but I'm glad about it because, you know, I got this seat in first class, and as I'm sitting there, they're boarding the you know, the riffraff that has to sit in the back. They're boarding all those people. And eventually somebody comes up to me, this flight attendant whose eyes had gotten really wide when I first got on the plane. She taps me on the shoulder and says, sir, can I see your boarding pass? I said, sure, here it is. Being careful not to spill my orange juice. And I handed it to her and she looked at it and she said, huh, sir, I think there's been a misprint on your boarding pass. You're not in seat 6H, you're in seat 36H, which is back there. And so uh, they let me keep the booties. They took away my glass of orange juice, uh, but they let me keep my booties, and I made my way back to where the riffraff was seated, and it turned out that I was one of the riffraff. This was a Pan-American flight, and it was a, uh, back in the day when Pan Am was you know, a going concern. And the Pan Am flight number for this flight, which was a routine flight from London to New York, was Pan Am Flight 103. And so I had flown this flight a couple of times, and I was flying it again that day, and it was uneventful. I got to where I needed to go and did all my stuff. But in 1988, after I had left England, that same flight number blew up over Lockerbie, Scotland. Everybody on board perished. And I thought to myself when that happened, what kind of illusion of comfort was in the minds of those people in the first class cabin, right where I was seated, as that plane blew up and then fell from the sky? In the passage that we're going to dive into this morning in Mark 13, the disciples had seen some rough times during their lifetimes. In particular, it was made, in particular, it was made rough by the occupation of this Roman army. These people were, you know, their job was not to be nice. Their job was to occupy and maintain control. So they had seen that oppression of foreign military occupation. But partially, partially at least, 
They had been kind of insulated from the, from the massive extent of the massive severity of that occupation by their worship system, by the structures that were around them. And in this passage this morning, the disciples have been with Jesus and they are walking through and by the temple. Now, I cannot underscore for you or overstate for you how massive and magnificent this temple was. This was the temple of Herod. Uh, Herod, the, the King Herod, the bad guy who had been king when the Jesus was born. This guy had been working on this temple for years and years and years and years and years. And his successors kept at it. You can go today to the city of Jerusalem and you can see little pieces of what was there on the Temple Mount. But it was magnificent. Gold and huge columns. And so and when Mark 13 opens... Jesus walks by this with the disciples who had had some rough times, but they look at this symbol of insulation that they've had from some of those rough times, and they mark, remark on its magnificence to Jesus. They go, look! Wow! And so what does Jesus do? He uses this little conversation he has with the disciples kind of as a springboard to teach them about relying on God and not relying on the things that we see around us in which we put so much stock. He's going to use a thing in the Bible that we call prophecy to teach them about reliance on God. So the first thing I want to say about this is it's a little technical. We're going to, we're going to experience in this chapter in the Gospel of Mark a thing called prophetic telescoping. That is, things that could be very distant from each other, from the point of view, this perspective where they are right now, they look like they're almost right together. Perhaps you've had this experience yourself, driving west towards the magnificent mountains of Colorado, and you see them there, and you see mountains behind them. They're not right behind them. They're kind of miles and miles away. So this telescoping, this thing happens. And so Jesus is going to move through some historical events in this chapter. He's going to move through the destruction of Jerusalem, which took place in A.D. 70, to the return, to his own return, as the reigning and conquering Messiah. So he talks about the characteristics of end times. Now, it's the year 2020. You and I live in the United States of America. And irrespective of our particular kind of economic or social status, we are pretty well insulated from a lot of the kind of hardship that Jesus is going to talk about in this passage. And so sometimes when we get to passages like this in the Bible, our kind of well-being gets in the way of us taking on board what Jesus has to say here. So I'm going to ask you for just a few minutes. It'll only take, you know, an hour or two. I'm going to ask you for this time to just kind of set aside your sense of, you know, I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. And think with us about what Jesus says here. So he talks about the characteristics of, again, what we call the end times. Now, you may have seen or heard the movies, you know, uh, and, and read some of the popular literature about these end times, which most of which come from a very particular kind of um, Bible interpretation perspective. 
Jesus is not endorsing any particular perspective here. He's laying out for the disciples what's going to happen and why it's important. So what characterizes the end times? The first thing that characterizes the end times is this kind of progressive deterioration. It's expressed physically in the culture. The first marker for these guys is the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. Do you get what Jesus is doing here? These guys have just commented on the magnificence of this temple, and Jesus says this all is going to fall down. One stone will not be left upon another. Don't put your trust in that, because it's going away. And then he goes on to talk about wars and rumors of wars. And what he's saying is that no single war indicates that the end is near, but every war tells us that there is an end. Every time some person in Palestine hiccups, Christian writers who should know better put out a book that ends up in a few months on the 99-cent rack. My favorite was, and I'm going to date myself here, my favorite one was 88 Reasons Why the Lord Will Return in 1988. Well, guess what? It didn't happen. And in 1989, that book was on the 99-cent rack. He's trying to get us to see that there is an end, but man, don't, don't presume to know the end. In this passage, Jesus says, no one knows the day or the hour. Not even him at that moment. And so he talks about, he uses this analogy of, which I'm going to carefully use this morning, of women in labor. This is not an experience I've had personally. But those of you who have had that experience or who have observed that experience, you realize the first contraction is not the birth, right? It's the beginning of the process of the birth. And I think most moms will tell you that labor really starts after the kid is born. (laughs) Progressive deterioration also marked by natural disasters. And we've seen our fair share of these. Just last year in April in Paola, Trinity Lutheran Church had its steeple knocked down by a tornado. Pastor Laura and I watched on on, uh, uh, Netflix the other day. No, it wasn't Netflix. It was Hulu. We watched the other day a series called Hard Sun. And the thesis behind this series was that the, 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 the powers that be had identified what they called an extinction-level event that they were trying to keep secret from the public so nobody would panic. There is an end. But we don't know when it's coming. These times are also going to be characterized by deceit, particularly about the deceit about the person of Jesus. Verses 6 and 21 and 22. Listen, every age has its motley crew of charlatans and deceivers. You've heard the expression, right? They drank the Kool-Aid. Talking about some kind of mindless submission to some idiot's propositions about whatever. Well, that expression came, right, from a group of people who literally drank literal Kool-Aid at the direction of a literal person named Jim Jones who led them to this place, who advertised himself as the coming one, and over 900 people died in that suicide murder. Over 300 of them were kids. 
killed by their parents because some person was deceptive about the nature of the body of Christ. There's deceit about the timing of the return. I mentioned those books before, but you know, in verses 21 and 22, Jesus says, watch out for those people who say, look, here it is. Look, it's happening now. There is a Netflix series. Now, I'm not plugging either Netflix or Hulu this morning. I'm just pointing out to you that we have seen these things. There's a Netflix series out right now called The Messiah. It's about this guy who jumps up in, in, the, in the Near East and, and magnificent things happen around him. And he's advertised in kind of subliminal ways in this series as the Messiah. But none of what he does or says tracks with the biblical account of who the Messiah is and what's going to happen. It's entertaining. The end times can also be characterized in verses 12 and 13 by family conflict. Now listen, there is a natural antipathy that's generated when believers and unbelievers in the same family share the same table, right? You've heard the expression, yeah, we're going for, going for dinner, but we're not going to talk about religion or politics. Why? Because those things can be potentially divisive. Even though from a Christian point of view, we should be all over talking about Jesus. Family conflict. Verse 9, persecution. Some of it's subtle, some of it's not so subtle. An outfit called Open Doors has what they call a world watch list. And they said last year that there are 260 million Christians living in places where they experience high levels of persecution. Thousands killed for their faith. Thousands of churches and uh, and other Christian buildings burnt down and attacked. Thousands of believers detained for no other reason than that they are Christians. Now, our own culture hasn't gotten there. But it's increasingly the case that our own culture is hostile to a Christian worldview. It's hostile to a biblical worldview. I was pastoring in Massachusetts. Um, There's a good baseball team there, by the way. I just thought I'd mention that. I was pastoring in Massachusetts, and the town I was in, which thought it was the center of the universe but really isn't, the town I was in was having a historical celebration. They had this thing every summer. And we thought, wow, it'd be great. The church has been part of the town for 200 plus years. We'll be part of that too. We'll bring our worship team out and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll sing for a while and we'll just you know, announce that we're here. We're part of the community. They said, no. They said, no. I said, why? Because you're a church. Yes. Well, we don't want to confuse people about the nature of this event. We had a little tussle about that. But at the end of the day, the people who were in control of that thing kept us out only because we were going to sing some Christian songs. So this kind of notion of conflict is there and it's real. You might not go to jail tomorrow because you say, I believe in Jesus, but there are places in the world where that happens. And then these end times are characterized by massive heresy, odd belief systems, Trappings of religion, but without without the truth and power of Christ. The Apostle Paul in his letter to Timothy, the second letter to Timothy, calls this a form of godliness, but denying its power. The trappings of religion, without the, the, the focus and center being Jesus and his work on our behalf. 
And so in verse 14, Jesus says, all of this culminates in what is called, and this is a quotation from the book of Daniel, by the way, the abomination that causes desolation. How'd you like to have that on your tombstone? Not so hot. And these folks in Palestine, in the day and time of Jesus, had experienced people that, or had historical reference to people in near history uh, about whom they could go, oh yeah, I think I have a picture of what that might look like. The emperor of Rome in the year AD 70 was the guy named Caligula. Have you heard of him? Not a pleasant fellow. Not your typical lunchtime comrade. So, all of this, again, see, we feel insulated by the fact that we're here in a nice, comfortable church building on a Sunday morning, and you're just wishing I'd get done so you could go to lunch. That's kind of where we are. But we're insulated by this sense of comfort. You're sitting on padded pews. The temperature in the building's okay. We have lights. It looks kind of nice. It's attractive. And we are insulated by this sense of, it kind of looks okay here. I can't imagine these kinds of things that Jesus is talking about here happening. And yet, he says, it's going to unfold. And so there's some things we should think about. What do we hold on to? Now listen, I have known people who have been extremely wealthy who have come to moments of crisis in their lives and none of their wealth mattered. What did they have to hold on to in, the mo- in those moments? The same thing you and I have to hold on to, which is the reality of the truth of the character of God. We hold on to that. And this chapter makes crystal clear, it's overarching, that God is in control. In verse 20, he tempers evil. He he, he, he tamps it down. Evil in the world is firmly bounded by God's control. We trust in this, in this chapter in the, in the orchestration of the timing of Jesus' return. We trust in the endurance of the Bible in verse 31. This is an iPhone 6S Plus. People keep telling me I should get it upgraded because there's a new one coming. But if you listen to the Apple people, there's a new one coming like every three minutes. And they want you to buy the new one that costs more, that has more memory, that can do more things, that can take wonderful pictures in wonderful ways. They have built in obsolescence. But the word, Jesus says in this passage, will endure. And so what's important about this, I think, chapter 13 in the Gospel of Mark, which I'll confess to you sometimes when I get to chapters like this in the Bible, I go, you know what, I'm just going to skip that because I'm not sure if anybody's going to resonate with that at all. End times, come on. I'm worried about the Emporium contest and which restaurant is going to win. End times. you got to be kidding. But in the middle of this, Jesus says what's important is the character of God's people. My character, your character. To trust in the right things. 
not external things, not religious things, not even the temple that the disciples were so enamored with, but to trust in Jesus alone. He says, we shouldn't be deceived, easily duped. I've been doing this Christian thing for a while, and I gotta tell you, sometimes Christians are the most gullible people on the planet. We believe the silliest things. I was in Wyoming, and a friend of mine came over, and he said, do you have any Procter & Gamble stuff in your, in your cupboards? I thought, I don't know, probably. And so we pulled out, like, I think Crisco was a Procter & Gamble thing, and sure enough, and they had this little symbol on the label for a while. It was a picture for like the man in the moon with stars around it. And my friend said, yeah, you see that? That's, that's a satanic symbol. I heard about that. We need to get rid of all this stuff. So I go through all my cupboards. Everything that was Procter & Gamble went in the trash. It was nonsense. Procter & Gamble had not been taken over by the devil. The stuff was okay. But sometimes we can be really, really, really duped. So what do we hold on to? We hold on to the scriptures. I was walking the other day by the high school, and I'm walking along, and this, this lady comes up, and she's driving, so she's coming past me so I can see her, and she's in her car, and she's dancing. I'm not making this up. Both hands up in the air. She's dancing. She's singing. I don't know what the song was, but it must have been really good. I'm thinking to myself, hold on to the steering wheel, will you? You and I, the Bible is our steering wheel. We've got to hold on to it. Pastor Lauren, I saw the, the movie The Call of the Wild the other day about the dog and the guy. You, you've heard about this movie, right? You've read the book? Anyway, so we're in the, watching this movie in the theater, and there's this scene where uh, this, the main character in the book, the main person character, John Thornton, he's uh, panning for gold, and he finds these gold nuggets in the in the stream nearby, and the dog picks up this gold nugget that's like the size of a football. And I'm thinking to myself, gold nuggets, gold nuggets, gold nuggets. Jesus says the word of God is our gold nugget. We need to hold on to it and treat it with what it's worth. And then, and then, Verses 28, 29, verses 5, 23, 33, 34, 35, 37. Jesus calls us to active waiting. Active waiting. This is not sitting in the physician's waiting room, reading the Reader's Digest that's 22 years old that they have sitting on the table for you, doing nothing, waiting for something else to happen. This is active waiting, right? Like, if, if, the, if there's a birth of a baby coming in your family, there are things you're going to do ahead of time. Right? To get ready for the birth? Right? Or a wedding. My gosh, the pain and agony that goes into planning weddings these days boggles my mind. There's all this orchestration and color coding and timing and scripting of the event, of the, of the invitations, and oh my gosh, where do we sit? Aunt Susie, because nobody likes her. don't do nothing in anticipation of big events. Waiting is active.
sieve. I love the turkey at Thanksgiving. The trouble with turkey, though, at Thanksgiving is it has tryptophan in it. You've heard of this? It's an amino acid that allegedly causes sleepiness after you consume the turkey. I personally think the sleepiness is induced by not wanting to do the dishes after the dinner's over. That's what I think. But sometimes I think we're, we're, on, we're on spiritual tryptophan. We're kind of dozing off. When Jesus calls us to active waiting, invested waiting. And here he talks about it looking like being part of the gospel reaching the ends of the earth. Here he talks about it in verses 33 and 34 is faithful stewardship. We all have our own assigned tasks. In verse 13, he talks about it as perseverance, hanging in there, getting on, moving on. I've got to tell you, I'm very, very happy that baseball is finally here. Spring training is happening right now. I understand there's a team in Kansas City, is that right? There's a baseball team there. After all the football foolishness is done, and I know we have the basketball stuff in front of us, the madness of March. But while the madness of March is happening on basketball courts, people are practicing baseball. I don't know if you paid attention recently, but there was a sign-stealing scandal. A World Series championship team was accused of and investigated for and finally, well, convicted of using audiovisual means to steal the signs of the opposing team. That really ticked me off, I gotta tell ya. Cheating bugs me. But what if you didn't have to steal the signs, right? What if the opposing pitcher says to the batter, hey, I'm going to throw a curveball now. Oh, hey, this one's going to be a slider. This one, cut fastball. What if they didn't have to steal the signs? What if somebody just announced what they were? That's what Jesus does in this passage. He announces the signs. And he tells us to be people who are ready for them. The signs will be there when we need them. But our focus is not on the signs. Our focus is not on our comfort. Our focus is not on the beauty of this historical building. Our focus is being alert to the opportunities Jesus puts in front of us each and every day and jumping on them as we wait for the return of the Lord. Pray with me.